It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. This episode, the Aspen Institute remembers and mourns Secretary Madeleine Albright, who passed away last week. She was a diplomat, professor, author, business leader, and the first woman to be the U.S. Secretary of State. America needs to be present. It doesn't have to run everything. President Clinton was the first one to say we were the indispensable nation. It's just that I said it so often, it became identified with me. But there is nothing about the word indispensable that says alone. It means that you need partners and that that is where I see America's role. In July 2018, she spoke to a live audience at the Aspen Institute about her book released that year, Fascism, A Warning. In keeping with the title, she expressed her unequivocal concern about the rise of fascist and fascist-leaning regimes, naming leaders such as Kim Jong-un and Vladimir Putin. Aspen Ideas to Go brings you compelling conversations hosted by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from the McCloskey Speaker Series. In today's talk, Aspen Institute President and CEO Dan Porterfield interviews Secretary Albright about escaping fascist Czechoslovakia in the 1940s and growing up in the U.S. learning from her diplomat father, and gets her read on NATO, the U.N., and the world's power-hungry leaders. Here's Albright. I was coming back from China um, a couple of years ago, and Chicago was the first port of entry. And I'm there getting undressed for the security people. And um, I put my stuff on the conveyor belt. And the lady behind me said, so where'd you get all those screw top bottles? My bottles all leak. And so I got them at the container store. And then going through the magnetometer, the TSA guard looks at me and he says, oh my God, it's you. Uh, He said, I'm from Bosnia. And we all love you in Bosnia. And if it weren't for you, there wouldn't be a Bosnia. And you're always welcome in Bosnia. And can I have my picture taken with you? So we have our picture taken. The line gets all screwed up. I go back, and the lady of the screw-top bottle says, so, so what exactly happened here? And I said, well, I used to be Secretary of State. And she said, of Bosnia? <laughs> so thank you, Eric. Uh, too, too good. Um, so we're, we're here again. So graced to have you on an Aspen Institute stage uh, to talk about fascism, a warning, which I think may be your sixth book on the New York Times bestseller list. That, that by itself, incredible. Um, and this was, this was an act of public service, um, I think, to really educate uh, all of your readers about some of the concerns, some of the threats, the warning that we should heed. And this is a, a pretty much a global book, a global perspective. So before we get to the book, I wanted to ask a little bit, if you don't mind, about your background growing up in Czechoslovakia, because surely those childhood experiences shaped your worldview. Well, thank you. And let me just say, I was born in 1937 in Prague, Czechoslovakia, two years before World War II. Uh, My father was a Czechoslovak diplomat, and when the Nazis marched in in March 39, Um, He and my mother and I uh, managed to escape, um, and uh, we went to London where the Czechoslovak government in exile was so that my father could serve in that government. And so I spent the war in England all through the Blitz, um, and my father broadcast over BBC into Czechoslovakia. um, And um, then we went back to Czechoslovakia right after the war, And uh, my father was chief of staff to the foreign minister, and then he was made ambassador to Yugoslavia. 
So the little girl in the national costume that gives flowers at the airport, that's what I did for a living. Um, um, and then what happened was my father was a professional diplomat, so uh, after three years he was to get a new assignment, and he was offered the job of being Czechoslovakia's representative to a new United Nations commission on India and Pakistan to deal with Kashmir. And he was very interested in doing that. And then in February 1948, there was the communist coup. And he didn't want to work for the communists. It turns out that his best friends in Belgrade were the British and American ambassadors. And so he um, asked, he talked to them and they, he said, you know, your country's just had a coup, they said. They'll name some communists, nothing will happen. And so what you need to do is not report to your own government and report to us, which, is he, which he did. And we came to the United States on November 11th, 1948, on the SS America, with no particularly horrible story because we came on diplomatic passports. Um, and then my father came um, and he defected and asked for political asylum. And I grew up with the stories of fascism in terms of what happened at Munich uh, when in fact there was a, an agreement between the British and French um, and the Germans and Italians over the heads of the Czechoslovaks and Czechoslovakia was sold down the river um, and fascism took over there. So for me in many ways this is a personal story. My father was a professor, all we ever talked about was foreign policy um, and I was really taught to uh, understand the history and the importance of it. So that is the story. Uh, and uh, fortunately for us, uh, your family was settled in Denver your father uh, is an eminent professor with an incredible legacy of impact as a scholar and as a teacher. Um, and as a result, and some in this audience may know this, but it is, we have a little pride in this place. You, you came to the Aspen Institute more than a few times when you were younger. Well, let me just say what happened. What happened in 1949, it was a time that the Rockefeller Foundation was finding jobs for Central European intellectuals or something, and they found him a job at the University of Denver. We had no idea where Denver was. Uh, my parents bought a car, started driving across America, and my mother said, um, this is so flat here, and they say, Denver's the mile-high city, so maybe we're going the wrong direction. Uh, <laughs> anyway, we got to here to Denver, and what happened was my father started teaching um, international relations at the University of Denver, and Aspen had really just begun, yeah. and so they were using local professors um, as resource people. So I started coming up here when I was a teenager, and I just flat out have to say the only board I wanted to be on was the Aspen Institute board. So yeah. I'm really delighted to be a part of this family yeah. and delighted to have you as our new president. Thank you, Matt. Pretty cool to have your sister Kathy here as well. Kathy, welcome. Yeah. You, you did say about my father's impact, and I have to tell the story because yeah. it's so unlikely. My father really did become a pretty big deal in Denver at the time. And by the way, my mother, on a regular basis, would say there are only two great cities in the world, Prague and Denver. <laughs> uh, no. So, um, but he, and he died in 1977. And, there were lots of flowers and tributes and things, and among them was a ceramic pot in the shape of a piano with just some leaves in it. So I said to my mother, where did this come from? And she said, it's from your father's favorite student, Condoleezza Rice. Um, her family was associated with the University of Denver. She was a music major, hence the piano. Um, and she took an IR course from my father, 
He persuaded her to become an international relations major. She got her master's from Notre Dame and was working on her dissertation when he died. Yeah. So this African-American music major from Alabama wrote her dissertation on the Czechoslovak military. <laughs> uh, and in 1987, when I was working for my long list of losing Democratic presidential candidates, uh, I uh, was working for Michael Dukakis, and uh, so my job was to find foreign policy advisors. So I thought, well, woman, Soviet expert, teaches on the West Coast, so I called her up and I asked her if she wanted to be an expert. And she said, Madeline, I don't know how to tell you this, but I'm a Republican. And I said, Condi, how could you be? We had the same father. <laughs> and he, he created two secretaries he of did. state. And but, now yeah. the school at the University of Denver is named in his honor. So he really, I'm very proud to be his daughter and his legacy. So let's turn to the book for a couple questions. Um, you begin by explicating the early history of Mussolini and Hitler. And uh, why did you choose to take us back in time to, the, to the, the sort of how they began in public life? Well, I think that we have a tendency to kind of throw the term fascism around. Um, anybody we disagree with is a fascist. Um, and uh, the teenage boy that can't drive mm -hmm. his car calls his father a fascist. And, and I thought it was very important to really understand a bit of the history. Plus, when I do teach, I try very hard to put things into historical context. And so, um, and I learned a lot, actually, in researching for this book. And I found both Mussolini and Hitler um, not only interesting in how they went about things, but what caused them to happen. Yeah. Because I do think that one of the things that we need to understand is that there is a reason, all of a sudden, why a demagogic leader can um, uh, overwhelm everybody um, in terms of saying, I have solution to your problems. My definition of fascism is that, in fact, it is when um, there is a, a, a tribal kind of group that this leader identifies with at the expense of those that are not in it. Yeah. So whatever divisions there are in society, they're exacerbated by this leader. And that is really what began um, with Mussolini. Yeah. Mussolini came to power after the disappointments Italy had in World War I. Um, he was an outsider. Um, he actually was smart and read a lot. Um, and he um, managed to get a group of people around him uh, that in fact said they had some solutions for the problems of Italy. The part that is interesting is he actually got power constitutionally. Uh, King Emmanuel of Italy asked him to take over. Uh, the same is true of Hitler. And I think people don't realize that, that Hitler, because of the problems in Weimar Germany and um, the, their economic crisis, Hitler um, kind of came to the fore with the same kind of sense that he could solve problems. And von Hindenburg asked him constitutionally an enabling act to take over. The, the other studies that I do are of current issues, and every one of the people were elected. Yeah. I think we have to remember that, except for the fact of the Soviet Union, Russia, where there was a revolution. Yeah. Um, and so that is the part that I wanted people to understand. So, so that one aspect of this is that the leader is able to manipulate into the remaking of laws so that the law seems to legitimize the practices that he then uses to, to, to exactly. divide the population. Yeah. Um, there are some other features of fascism, too, the, the scapegoating. Will you say a little bit about that? Well, I think the important part, you, you, if you accept the fact 
that there are divisions in society that this leader um, really builds on. The, the divisions often have something to do that's gone wrong in the economy or some yeah. problem why somebody lost a war. And so you have to find somebody to blame. And so there began to be the scapegoatism um, that there is always somebody to blame in um, the case of Hitler, obviously the Jews. And so, uh, but one of the things that we see now um, is that there is blame. The countries that I look at, frankly, the, the modern ones now are Turkey, Hungary, Poland, uh, the Philippines, and Venezuela. Uh, but what is absolutely true in all those European ones, they're blaming the refugees. Yeah. Um, and there has been kind of the militarization uh, of the fact that the refugees are undermining the economy. Why should we have a bunch of refugees? Um, they're terrorists also, uh, that kind of thing. And so basically that is the part they are the scapegoats for this uh, because that aspect of fascism is a very important part. Yeah. Something that I learned, um, I guess I was working off of just general knowledge and kind of common sense, and I was thinking about how, well, in the time of World War II and the aftermath, uh, the communists were left and, and Hitler was right, and so fascism is right, but actually, you know, right wing. But actually, you're, what you're showing us is that fascism is almost idea ideology neutral. Is that right? It, it yeah. is not an ideology. Yeah. It is a process yeah. for gaining and keeping power. Um, and so, very much so, it is a way of, of I, as I said, identifying with one group against another, uh, saying that the law doesn't work, making sure that the judiciary is not independent, and a lot of the characteristics that communism has. I think the only difference is, as I said earlier, they came to power by uh, revolutionary means, not by elected. The only person that I flat out call a fascist in the book is Kim Jong-un, the, the North Korean. Yeah. Uh, because that is absolute power over people in a way using terror and force against them. So, and the way you build the argument, if we understand fascism as a process, we can then look at practices and behaviors and actions and say, do we see, you know, sort of similarities with past fascist behavior in present times? This is just a new way to think about it. Well, because it comes in, in a process, not as yeah. a... I think what is interesting, the best quote in the whole book is from Mussolini. Yeah who says, if you pluck a chicken one feather at a time, the chicken won't notice. Yeah. There has been a lot of feather plucking yeah. recently. Yeah. Those are two words that are hard to say quickly together. <laughs> <laughs> so th this does raise the question, uh, which I'll just ask directly, do you think that Donald Trump is a fascist? No, I don't yeah. think he's a fascist. Um, uh, my definition of fascism is this issue of dividing, of the, exacerbating the divisions, um, not having respect for law. But yeah. the part that I think is dispositive is using violence against your own people, yeah. uh, an, a bully with an army. I don't think he's a fascist. I think, however, that he's the most non-democratic president in modern American history. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and, and the reason that I say that is that he does not understand the role of the press in terms of being the basis of how uh, the population gets its information, no respect for uh, the law, um, and, and um, does believe that he has all the answers. But I really do not think he's a fascist. Yeah. Do you, um, 
and the book is called Fascism, A Warning. So is the warning that um, the, some of the non-democratic nationalist movements, some of the behaviors that look like early fascism better be checked? Well, let me just say, uh, there are people who've said that the book is alarming. The, the, it is kind of scary looking. Um, it, is me- it is meant to be alarming. Yeah. Um, and I really do think that we are not paying enough attention to what the various things are that are going on. You asked about nationalism. I, I think um, this is a very large issue. And, um, and I do think there is uh, one of the, there's some couple of mega trends taking place in the world. One is globalization. And clearly, most of us have benefited from it, but it has a downside because it's faceless. And people want to know what their identity is. And it's fine if you want to know religious, ethnic, linguistic identity. But if, then that's patriotic. I really believe in that. But if my identity hates your identity, it's nationalism and hyper-nationalism. And that part is very, very dangerous. And we are seeing uh, various aspects of nationalism, um, I think here, frankly. um, And we can talk more about that. But I've just come back from Europe doing something, one of my favorite Aspen activities, which I have to explain a little bit. Um, By the way, um, I was the last Secretary of State of the 20th century and the first of the 21st. The only problem is that I used to say it kind of like five months after President Clinton named me, which was kind of presumptuous, but that he'd keep me for four years. He did, and so I am. But uh, the bottom line is that we were trying to see how, in fact, you build bridges to the 21st century and what one does. Now, I wasn't that modern because I invented the art of the diplomatic telephone conference call. Um, And all during the war in Kosovo, I spoke to a group of foreign ministers about what we were going to do, um, and it was all on an open line. Anyway, we got to be very, very good friends. So then we're out of office, and I all of a sudden get a call from one of them, Robin Cook, the British Foreign Secretary, who was head of the European Socialists, and he said, he just came out of a meeting, and he said, people are saying terrible things about America, do something, Madeline. So then another one of the formers called and said, do something, and I thought, well, it'd be great to get this group together. So I needed a wonderful organization to provide the umbrella, so what else but Aspen? So it is called, officially, the Aspen Ministers Forum. However, its unofficial name is Madeline and her exes. Um, We meet as often as we can, and literally, we just met a month ago to talk about nationalism, of all places, at Versailles. Um, And it's the 100th anniversary of the end of World War I. And what I find interesting is, especially the countries in Central and Eastern Europe, were created on the basis of national identity, and Woodrow Wilson and self-determination. And so these countries, Uh, it is natural for them to begin to talk about it now, especially since they think that the European Union bureaucrats in Brussels are faceless. And so we were talking about what does that mean, where does it come from, but what was very interesting about our discussion, it was the liveliest one we've had in 20 years, is that people are very concerned about what America's role is, because that whole era... Um, from World War II on is one where the United States presence was very important. And you ask kind of how this influenced me and go back to America was not present at Munich. Um, I was taught that made a difference. When we were, and I was in London during World War II, that's when the Yankees arrived. And I remember what it was like 
when the American soldiers were there. That's when I fell in love with Americans in uniform. And then what happened after World War II, it was decided that Europe would be divided in half and the Soviet, the Red Army would liberate the country where I was born in. Um, and um, it remained behind the Iron Curtain for 50 years. And so for me, my kind of uh, storyline is that America needs to be present. It doesn't have to run everything. Um, President Clinton was the first one to say we were the indispensable nation. It's just that I said it so often, it became identified with me. But there is nothing about the word indispensable that says alone. Yeah. It means that you need partners um, and that uh, that is where I see America's role. And so it was very difficult, I think, to be in Europe at the time that there were lots of discussions about America being a victim and taken advantage of and what was our role going to be and why were we there anyway. And so it added to the poignancy of that particular meeting as we were dealing with the problem of nationalism. Yeah, I, I can only imagine that uh, you, Madeline, and the exes constructed, helped to construct and sustain a framework that has allowed for peace in Europe you know, for 70 years. Well, and people were literally asking whether it was the end of the West. Yeah. Um, and, you know, were we about to do something totally different? What did we all believe in? What was the value system? And I think those are genuinely important questions. And one of the reasons I think that I'm very glad I wrote this book. It was, I learned a lot, as I said, writing it. But also, I think it has come at a time where a warning is very important. And, by the way, we all know the, you know, see something say something, I have added to that, do something. And so I think we'd have to develop our to-do lists, and I have mine. Yeah. Um, do you think NATO ha still has great relevance for the world we live in you know, in the future? Would, is that something we should, as a country, be recommitting to and trying to protect? I do, but let me just say this. Uh, because my life really is insane and uh, accidental in so many ways, after World War II, America was not sure what to do about Central and Eastern Europe. And it, and it was salami tactics being used by Stalin. And it wasn't until uh, the Czechoslovak coup in February 48 that all of a sudden there was a sense in, in Washington that something had to be done. And NATO was formed the next year. And so then it was very interesting to be in office when we talked about what to do with NATO after the end of the Cold War and the NATO expansion. Um, and what was the purpose of NATO? It is the most powerful military alliance in the history of the world, but it's also a political alliance, a value system, and keeping countries um, unified in terms of following democratic principles. What is interesting is it's all so prepared to adjust. So one of the things that happened on the 60th anniversary of NATO 10 years ago there was a new secretary general named, and the heads of state decided that there needed to be a group of experts to advise him, and every country named an expert, and I was named by the United States. Then this um, secretary general Rasmussen decided that he only needed 12 experts, automatically irritating 16 countries, um, and then he asked me to chair it. But what was interesting was how differently people looked at NATO at the time, because everything was out of area. We were in Afghanistan, we'd been in the Balkans. So what was the role of NATO um, when it was out of area? We determined also that NATO had more partners than members, so that there was a wide group of people that agreed. We started asking whether a cyber attack was an Article 5 attack. 
uh, because Estonia's system, banking system, had been brought down, and we weren't able to agree to that. But the reason I tell the story is all of a sudden, with what the Russians have done in Crimea and their threats on the Baltics, all of a sudden NATO is back in the business that it was created to do. And so, yes, I think it has a role. But I also, um, President Trump is not the first one to talk about the 2%. I think there needs to be a greater partnership and a stepping up. Yeah, with with the combination of Brexit on the one hand uh, and questions about the European Union, and then the rise of nationalism in some countries that are a part of the NATO expansion, um, does that sort of foretell, you know, trouble holding it together? Well, let me just say what is very complicated are all the different organizations that are out there in the world. And I do know when I was in office and I tried to call a European minister, I never could find the person because that person was in some alphabet soup yeah. thing. So I asked the, um, the, depart- the intel department at the State Department to give me a map of what where what the European organizations looked like. And I get this map, and it looks like some kind of astronomical chart with Bulgaria as Pluto. And, um, and so, and I started calling it the Euro mess. Uh, and I handed it to my colleagues and said, I never know where you are. What are all these um, things that you're doing? And they really are, in many ways, divided. And there were questions about what is central. So the European Union is incredibly important. And Turkey is a member of NATO, but not of the European yeah. Union. And there's a question as to whether the European Union should have its own force, and why does it duplicate NATO? And now with the Brexit aspect, um, the UK is in NATO, and that is gonna be a very important part. Um, And yet, what happens with the EU? So there are an awful lot of questions going on now. And one of the things, as a professor and political scientist, um, I have to say, trying to teach about all these organizations at this moment is difficult, but, and I've said this, organizations and people at the age of 70 need a little refurbishing. And so I think that it's, there's nothing bad about seeing what are the uh, basically useful parts of the organization, yeah. whether it's the EU or the United Nations, without destroying the entire international system. Yeah. So the President of the United States, Secretary of State, are responsible for conducting foreign policy. There's a whole set of norms about how we've done that over the years, and how we carry ourselves in diplomatic settings. Some of those norms have been completely upset with North Korea or with the, uh, uh, the, the recent meeting that President Trump had with Vladimir Putin without anybody else in the room. Um, how do you interpret the, the sort of like the, the new way that he's conducting foreign policy? Well, let me just say, you and I have in common our Georgetown time. I teach at Georgetown now, and I made up a course. And I say foreign policy is just trying to get some country to do what you want. That's all it is. So what are the tools? And so my course is called the National Security Toolbox. And we are the most powerful country in the world, and there are not a lot of tools in the toolbox. There's diplomacy, bilateral and multilateral. There are the economic tools, trade and aid, and then sanctions. There's the threat of the use of force. There's the use of force, intelligence and law enforcement. That's it. And statecraft is trying to figure out which tool you use when. Um, I I love teaching it. Um, I do a role play. I am the deus ex machina. Whenever (laughs) the students figure anything out, um, I screw it up. And then I become the president. So, uh, (laughs) but uh, the thing that I think is important is (coughs) diplomacy is the basic tool of foreign policy. 
you actually need diplomats yeah. to do diplomacy and a State Department um, and a budget. Yeah. Uh, and, but I think that what is important, and I have to say, I worked for a president that loved to, um, first of all, study the issues in a number of different ways, and then also where the system, the decision-making system worked. Um, the system dates from 1947 when the National Security Council was the one that tried to organize the way President Roosevelt uh, made decisions. But the bottom line is that it's very, what the question that you asked, what happened in the last weeks with these summits was never happened before exactly. Because um, what is important is the preparation for them and the system is set up to do that preparation. Then um, the meetings themselves, which actually, there are times that two leaders meet briefly with each other, uh, but there's always in these official meetings, there's not only the interpreter, but a note taker, and usually the Secretary of State. Yeah. Um, and um, it is done for the protection of the leader of the country. Yeah. Um, and so what was really very weird was not having that kind of a, a system in either of these particular meetings. And so it's quite unclear what really was decided. Yeah. Because what then happens, the note taker and uh, explains what happened and then the system goes into overdrive in order to make things happen. Yeah. So what we've had so far are only the Russian explanations of what happened, which means that they dominate the narrative and we really don't know what has happened, and so it's very um, something that, that is not a normal way of operating, and I think that it hurts President Trump, yeah. uh, because um, he gets confused about what he was confused about. So I think that yeah. it, it makes it a problem, and it makes it very hard, I think, especially if, as the Russians have dominated it. And on the North Korean one, what I think is very interesting is that there are genuine problems of definition. What is denuclearization? How do you verify it? And none of that has taken place. And according to the newspapers this morning, the North Koreans are back doing something uh, with highly enriched uranium, rebuilding a certain part, and we don't know whether that's true or not. So, and I was asked whether Singapore was a win-win or a Kim-win. It was a Kim-win yeah. because we don't know what really happened. So I think the president has weakened his own hand by not having um, somebody there that really uh, can tell yeah. our story. So um, two weeks ago, we held the Aspen Security Forum, and it was, it was a point of pride for us to be able to see government officials taking questions from reporters. You know, they don't do that too often in Russia. Um, and it was very impressive to hear FBI Director Ray or Intelligence Director Coates, um, or the, uh, the general who commands the Cyber Command, Naksoni, um, when asked about the threat that Russia poses, say, well, it's not the only threat. China's one too, but Russia's a real threat. And I just would ask for this audience, is there, are there elements of, the, of a threat that Russia may pose that we should be aware of, that we should educate ourselves about? Well, very much so. First of all, um, I used to be a Soviet expert, um, and I look at my uh, library and I think, or archaeology, no, it is not. Um, we are dealing with um, a man, Putin, who wants to recreate not the Soviet Union, but a Russian empire. And I, just uh, to explain something, I, um, in 91, while I was a professor and head of a think tank, I actually did a survey of all of Europe 
um, and we had questionnaires and focus groups. And one of the things I'll never forget was a focus group that we did outside of Moscow. And this man stands up and he says, I'm so embarrassed. We used to be a superpower and now we're Bangladesh with missiles. Yeah. Um, and what has happened is Putin has kind of picked up on that embarrassment and saying, I will make Russia great again. And so I think that what we're dealing with, we're dealing with a KGB agent. We cannot forget that. And he has played a weak hand very, very well. And what he is doing is trying to separate us from our allies. In, and he's militarized information and a number of different things and is undermining us um, in Europe. So I do think they are a threat. And they are a threat with, I mean, they do have a very large nuclear um, cohort and they, we do need to continue the arms control talks, but they also are using their energy policy to uh, uh, woo people away. And then something else which is interesting, one of the things that has happened is there's a doctrine about responsibility to protect, which is if a leader is doing something terrible in his country, um, then the international community needs to help. What has happened is the Russians are taking advantage of it by saying that there are people, that there were people in Crimea who wanted them to come in and help. I think people are concerned that there are a Russian-speaking group in Latvia who yeah. it would be, uh, I think it would be phony, it's not true, but the Russians could say they want our help. And so we are dealing with a very smart operator yeah. um, who is in, has a plan and he is using it systematically to make, to be a threat to the yeah. United States. I want to ask one more question, then we'll open it up to the audience. So please think about what you'd like to ask uh, Secretary Albright. But um, you call yourself in a book uh, uh, an optimist who worries. And um, I think it's, it's helpful to emphasize the optimism part, too, because we've, we've touched on some heavy topics. Uh, could I ask you to reflect upon one public leader, you know, somewhere in your experience and in, in, in all you've done, Who's really inspired you and who's an example that we can look to today, not with cynicism, but with admiration? Well, I have to say there were three leaders that I admire a lot. Yeah. Nelson Mandela, yeah. Václav Havel, uh, and Aung San Suu Kyi. Yeah. And what I admired about them was that they were able to forgive their jailers. Yeah. Um, and Nelson Mandela was really unbelievable in, in placing people that had been his jailers into, into positions. Havel did the same thing. Um, I have to say I'm disappointed in Aung San Suu Kyi. We can talk more about that. But the person that really did have a big influence over me was Václav Havel, um, mainly because he was Czech and I got to know him. And, um, and I was, one of the things that had happened in being, living in the United States um, in the 70s and 80s, for instance, when um, countries like Hungary and Poland were having various revolutions and the Czechs weren't doing anything. And I was always asked, what's the matter with your people? Um, and Havel comes along, who in fact was kind of the, um, the epitome of a, of a patriot, but also a humanitarian yeah. who understood and was able not only to forgive his jailers, but one of the big issues was that he forgave the Germans um, and did in fact 
um, talk about what had happened during Munich. And so uh, he definitely is an inspirational figure. Yeah. We did get to be friends. Various things that I never thought would happen is to get to be friends with Václav Havel and go to jazz clubs with him and try to explain America. Not to mention, you, were, you helped to make it possible for him to speak to the Congress, and that was one of the great moments in congressional history of hosting foreign leaders. Well, it was really, I, I, if I can tell the story, is what happened. I first went to Prague after the Velvet Revolution in January 90 as vice chairman of the National Democratic Institute, and I met Havel, and I'm giving him my father's book, uh, 20th century Czechoslovakia. And he looked at me and said, ah, I know who you are, you're Mrs. Fulbright. And I said, no, I'm Mrs. Albright. Uh, <laughs> that's how our friendship started. Um, and he asked me then to go talk to his advisors about how the government, uh, how the president's office looks, et cetera, and how a president should behave. And it was snowing in Prague. And I was walking back to my hotel across Charles Bridge, and I did actually have an out-of-body experience, which was that I'd never left. Um, and I then recognized that I wouldn't know what a president's office looked like if I hadn't left. And so I was very glad to be of help to him. Yeah, lovely. Yeah. So well, let's open it up. Does anyone have a question you'd like to ask Secretary Albright? Yes. All, and could you stand and um, say your name? And, and in, in the interest of getting lots of questions, um, try to... Yes, follow his lead. <laughs> uh, Mark Budd, and uh, Madam Secretary, you said you had a to-do list. Could you tell us what's on your to-do list? Well, my to-do list is, first of all, that we do have to defend a free press, that we need to understand the importance um, of, of a judicial branch. We need to call out a president when he doesn't obey the law. I also do think that it's important for people to run for office and those of us that are not running to support those people and explain the importance of voting. And then one that is difficult, frankly, is to talk to people we disagree with. Um, I think it is very, very important to do that I, and to listen to opinions you disagree with. Some of you, um, you should be glad you don't live in Washington where I listen to right-wing radio as I drive. Um, and yell a lot and have a lot of hand motions. Uh, but I do listen. Uh, and I also think that I don't like the word tolerance because it's tolerate to put up with. I think we need to respect other people's opinions and talk to them. And then there's never been a book or speech that has ever been given that doesn't quote Robert Frost. And so a quote I like is that he says, the older I get, the younger are my teachers. And I want to pay attention to those high school students that went out and marched and had town hall meetings um, and to really uh, listen to the younger generation, the millennials. Those of us that are a certain age don't want to be called old. We're perennials, and the perennials need to talk to the millennials. <laughs> Next question. Uh, right there, yes. Sam Silverstein, Columbia, Sam Silverstein, Columbia University. Uh, thank you for those wonderful remarks. Uh, what do you think uh, the world should do about the incredible problem of refugees that we're now experiencing? Thank you. Um, first of all, I think that we need to understand where they come from and why, and the distinction between refugees and immigrants, which is unfortunately complicated, but the refugees are, by the way, despite the fact that 
my sister and I, brother who's not here, are refugees, uh, most people want to live in the country where they were born. And they can't live in the Middle East at the moment, and that is the creation of the largest number of people that are fleeing and are there taking chances to get out. And then there are the immigrants uh, who are coming from countries where they can't make a living or are victims of global warming because of desertification and lack of water. And I do think that uh, it is unfortunate that we haven't been able to develop some kind of an organized system about it internationally, um, and that the European Union hasn't been able to figure out how to deal with this. But I think the terrible part for me, as far as I'm concerned, and you can imagine why I would say this, is what has happened in the United States. Every country has a right to make its own immigration policy. That is a sovereign right. Um, but I do drive across America a lot. This is a very large country and we have a lot of room. And we are setting a very bad example as even as we speak, the administration is considering lowering the numbers of people that can come in legally. And it is very hard for us to tell the Europeans what to do if we are not doing enough. Or, uh, for instance, um, I know King Abdullah of Jordan, and that country is a frontline state, and I've been there, I went, I went to their refugee camps, not even most of the um, refugees that they have live in the camps. And so at one stage, the king said, just imagine it's as though the United States had 40 million refugees. And then I saw him most recently, and I said that, and he said, no, you're wrong, it's 60 million refugees. And we can't even take several thousands, tens of thousands of people. And I think it's an embarrassment. Uh, it is un-American, and we need to work out a system that is not a bargain about a wall, but how not to separate children from their families, how to use our technology to figure out who is who, and be generous in our refugee and immigration. <laughs> So I'm about to call on the questioner right here, but first I would like to make an a, uh, invitation to all of the college students who are here to formulate a question. The next question after this one should come from someone in college, and I'm going to cold call a college student, and I see several in my line of vision if no one comes up with a question. But now, while you're contemplating your question, Bruce. I don't guess this, well, yeah, it's working. Madam Secretary, um, I've often wondered why the UN is so impotent. And while all the powers seem to be there, as you mentioned, the right to protect, it, has, it wrote that clause, it has that power. We have the right to protect against dictators and fascists and, and, and you know, untoward behavior. Why don't we use it more? Well, I think uh, I am a great UN Nick. Uh, for obvious reasons, and by the way, I did win the um, UN um, uh, whole contest for the Rocky Mountain Empire when I was in the 10th grade, and um, the reason I think I got it was because I could name the 51 countries of the UN in alphabetical order. Um, there are now 193 countries, and that is part of the issue, each of them with one vote. Um, and so the voting system is complicated. I do believe in um, that that is an appropriate way, but there are a lot of parts of the UN that have in fact um, don't work for a variety of reasons. So for instance, the Security Council. Uh, at any given time, there, uh, 
out of the 15 members, there are five Europeans. And I would go to a European and I'd say, I need your help on export. And the ambassador would say, I'm so sorry, I can't help you. The EU does not yet have a common position. And then two days later, I'd go back to the same person and the ambassador would say, I can't help you because the EU does have a common position. Under logic, if it hadn't been for Brexit, the EU should have the permanent seat. The US is not going to give up its veto. I don't think we should. But there needs to be some voting system that works. And the part that is the real problem is that we, the UN is based on the nation state system. And we now know that there are many different kinds of stakeholders. And I've been arguing for the fact that the private, that foundations and NGOs and the private sector need to be at the table sooner because the public sector can't deal with everything. The US is in a very bad position to push for reform, mainly because we're part of the problem. There are, bill, there are two kinds of payments there. There are dues as part of a club, and there are the bills which go for peacekeeping operations. And I can tell you, when I was in office, we were in arrears on that. And Congress had decided unilaterally not to pay it all. And meanwhile, I'm arguing for changes in the UN, leading our best friends, the British, to deliver a statement they'd waited more than 200 years to say, which is representation without taxation. Um, and it's very hard to have that kind of purchase. And I think Nikki Haley's doing a good job, but we're not paying our bills. And the UN does need fixing. We do need a world organization, but some of the parts, we need to be looking at what to do about fragile states. We need to figure out how to make the responsibility to protect viable, we do have a secretary general at the time who I think is working very hard at this, but I would not abolish the UN. By the way, there are people that don't like the UN. They think it has helicopters that swoop down and steal your lawn furniture. Um, and then there are people who don't like the UN because it's full of foreigners, which can't be helped. So college or high school students? I see one in the back, yes. Is this on? Yeah. I'm Abby, I'm a rising senior in college, and you mentioned wanting to learn more from millennials, so I was wondering what you think is the issue that we have the most saliency on and how we can get perennials to listen. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> by the way, the best thing here is one of the hard parts of being a, a professor is you ask a question and nobody answers and you think, now what? Uh, so, um, anyway. Yeah. It worked here. Uh, I had a few ringers uh, in yeah. the audience. Uh, let me just say that I think that what need to, people need to focus on is the issue of voting. Um, and the response, that what worries me about the millennials in many ways is that they think that the voting um, is not worth it because you don't get the results right away. And I do think that that would be the thing that I think needs to happen. Um, in a way to be very motivated. I find fascinating that the millennials are very interested in community service in a number of different ways, but are not united enough in terms of, uh, I think that they, you all ought to get out there and get people to register to vote and then help them on that day um, in order to make sure that people actually get to the voting booths because this particular election in now 99 days um, is very important and that's what I would focus on. Then the other thing that I would be very interested in having more opinions from the millennials on, I happen to be for um, mandatory national service and that's something that Aspen is looking at and I'd love to know what you all think.
Let me look to this side of the room. Is there a question for Secretary Albright? Madam, hi, Bill, Bill Sterling. Um, if you had the ear of someone in the current administration uh, regarding the issue of Iran, what pathway would you recommend in terms of what's happening with that right now? Well, I would say, so I'd, I'd like to say we made a mistake and we really want to go back to the JCPOA. Um, but I do think, and I do think it was a mistake because one of the issues is when you are a negotiator, you can't do everything all at once, and so you, you deal with certain parts of it with the idea of building on it. Um, and so I think that was a huge mistake to walk out of there because it has given legitimacy to some of the uh, deviations that the Iranians really, I mean, they've been very bad beyond their, the nuclear issue, the kinds of things that they're doing uh, to undermine what's going on in Syria and just generally. Um, and so I think that what would be important, but they don't, the Iranians don't want to do this now, is to try to establish some diplomatic um, uh, ways of dealing with each other and maybe through a third party. But I think it's a mistake to let this fester uh, because it's very dangerous and they are all over the place. And they now do in many ways have say, I told you so. I also would try to figure out how the Europeans can keep various parts of it there. Uh, but the real problem is going to be the United States in terms of sanctions and secondary sanctions. It's one of the most complicated issues that's out there, which is why it was a mistake. So as we get ready to go to the next portion of, uh, of our evening, which is the book signing portion, I would like to ask you a question to close about what is that gorgeous pin? <laughs> so this pin is Mercury the messenger, uh, because I really do have a message. But it is interesting because people always want to know about the pins. So why? What is the story behind this? I clearly like jewelry. Um, and when I got to the United Nations, it was... Um, right after the Gulf War, and the ceasefire had been translated into a series of sanctions resolutions. And I was an instructed ambassador, and my job was to make sure the sanctions stayed on. So I said perfectly terrible things about Saddam Hussein constantly, and he deserved it. He had invaded Kuwait. And so all of a sudden, a poem appeared in the papers in Baghdad comparing me to many things, but among them an unparalleled serpent. So I started wearing my snake pin whenever... <laughs> Um, we talked about Iraq. And then you've all noticed how the ambassadors come out at the end and talk to the press. So camera zeroes in and says, why are you wearing that snake pin? So I said, because Saddam Hussein compared me to an unparalleled serpent. And then I thought, this is fun. I was living in New York, so I went out and bought a lot of costume jewelry um, and to depict whatever I thought I was going to do on any given day. So on good days, I wore flowers and butterflies and balloons. And on bad days, a lot of insects and carnivorous animals. Um, and the other ambassadors would say, what are we going to do today? And I'd say, read my pins. So that is how it began. So they all have some kind of foreign policy story. And I really had fun with it. So for instance, to uh, relevant at the moment is how the Russians behave. So what happened when I was in office, the Russians were bugging the State Department. Um, in a room right near the office on the seventh floor. And we found the guy, finally. He was sitting outside, and um, we did what diplomats do, was demarche Moscow. But the next time I met with the foreign minister of Russia, Primakov at the time, I wore this huge bug 
and he knew exactly what was going on. So, uh, but the, the pins really, there are, um, and I've got a book about all my pins, and it's been um, traveling around. It's finished its travels. Bren has been very supportive of it. We went to Indianapolis and various things. I've decided to give the whole collection to the State Department's Diplomacy Museum because they all have stories that are foreign policy stories, and I try very hard to make foreign policy less foreign. So, but there are times pins have gotten me into trouble and they've gotten me out of trouble. So what happened was um, during the 50th anniversary of NATO, President Clinton and Secretary Bill Cohen and I were sitting in the green room on a sofa and I don't know who started it, but we did the hear no evil, see no evil monkeys. We looked like crazy people and ended up in Time Magazine. Um, anyway, I found three monkey pins and we're going to our, um, the summit in Moscow. And I don't know how I could have done this, but I did. I wore the three monkeys and we're walking in and President Putin actually said to President Clinton, we always notice what pins Secretary Albright wears. Why are you wearing those monkeys? And I actually said, because I think your policy in Chechnya is evil. And he got furious, rightfully so. Clinton looks at me like, are you nuts? You're the chief diplomat and you've just screwed up the summit. <laughs> so that's when pins got me into trouble. So, but they did get me out of trouble. I invented the art of diplomatic kissing. You can't visualize Henry Kissinger or Jim Baker arriving somewhere, big <laughs> hugs and things. And much more complicated than meets the eye because the Latin, some kiss on the right cheek and some on the left, and so a lot of bumped noses. Then the French kissed twice, and the Dutch kissed three times. And then there was Yasser Arafat, just the thought, right? So, <laughs> so, uh, so, I arrived in South Korea. Big embrace, great meeting, everything was wonderful. I get home, and all of a sudden I get a call from a uh, journalist saying, so don't you think the South Korean foreign minister should be fired for what he said about you? And I said, well, what did he say? He said, well, I just love it when Secretary Albright comes because we always have this big embrace. We're the same age and I'm this tired old man, but when I embrace her, she has very firm breasts. So what do you have to say about it? <laughs> and I say, well, I have to have something to put those pins on. <laughs> <laughs> the next time we shook hands. <laughs> <laughs> so tr truly, truly uh, a role model for all, a national treasure, an Aspen treasure. Thank you so much. Secretary Madeleine Albright was a professor, author, diplomat, and businesswoman who served as the 64th Secretary of State of the United States, among many other achievements and accomplishments. She also served on the Aspen Institute Board of Trustees starting in 2002 and founded the Aspen Ministers Forum to strengthen diplomatic ties between the U.S. and Europe that same year. She helped establish Aspen Central Europe based in Prague in 2012 and was recognized in 2011 as the recipient of the Institute's Henry Crown Leadership Award. Daniel Porterfield is President and CEO of the Aspen Institute. Secretary Albright leaves an enormous legacy as a longtime champion of freedom, justice, and equity around the world. Today's show was programmed by the McCloskey Speaker Series and produced by Natalie Jones and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for listening.